The first thing you might think of when you think of a supercomputer are those names. Cray, Aurora, Deep Blue, Pangaea, Frontier. They're named after mountains and deserts and oceans. They're poetic, mysterious, impenetrable, even if from the outside they don't look like much at all. It's lots of, um, you know, sort of black uh, cabinets uh, with lots of LEDs flashing. Supercomputers are big, they're noisy, they use up more energy than a small town, but they might just help us find the answer to some of the biggest problems. What I could see happening in the future is like personalized medicine, drug discovery on individuals. You know, one thing that's, that's very interesting is what's called space weather. We're doing things now which would have been considered inconceivable even just two or three years ago. In today's episode, we go down the supercomputing rabbit hole to find out what makes these machines so powerful, how machine learning is pushing the boundaries of science and tech, and why organizations might need high-performance computing sooner than they might think. All that and much more, I'm Michael Bird, and this is Technology Untangled. Supercomputing and high-performance computing, or HPC, are one and the same. But you hear HPC being used more and more these days. You see, there's a growing call for the democratisation of high-performance computing. After all, I'm sure you're saying to yourself, surely a supercomputer is just the best computer ever, and don't we all deserve the best? The answers to that question are sort of and yes, but to understand exactly what supercomputers are good for, we need to understand where they came from. So. Here's Jacob Balmer, HPC and AI engineering research scientist for Hewlett-Packard Enterprise. The first supercomputers were invented to solve a, a very specific hydrodynamics problem for simulating nuclear weapons. So during World War II, they were trying to develop these uh, nuclear weapons. They had to do what's called a numerical simulation. Um, it's essentially a fluid dynamic simulation. And so they needed to to run that problem numerically through a computer. And that's kind of Alan Turing and John von Neumann um, kind of came up with the architecture and sort of the algorithm for running numerical methods on these systems. Supercomputers have come a long way in a relatively short amount of time, thanks to one brilliant but eccentric electrical engineer who dominated supercomputing for decades. Seymour Cray was a pretty cool guy and he had a lot of like crazy uh, ideas. He was one of the first people that were proposing using, I think, gallium arsenide to replace silicon and building chips out of this stuff. I mean, they did crazy things back in the day. Seymour Cray made his legacy creating computers that pushed architecture and materials to their absolute limits. Although, luckily, he gave up on the gallium arsenide quite quickly. In the 60s, while all the computers on the market had germanium transistors, Cray was experimenting with silicon. He had a hunch that if he could get the silicon transistors working and add enough refrigeration to deal with the overheating, he'd reach processing speeds 10 times faster than any other machine on the planet. And, as you might guess, that's exactly what he did. In 1964, the first supercomputer was born the CDC 6600. What followed were decades of Cray basically outdoing himself on speed and efficiency. He was head and shoulders above everyone else. Now, there has been plenty of examples of interesting applications for supercomputers over the years, from modelling natural disasters to beating humans at chess, but for the most part, until very recently, 
These machines have pretty much just been the domain of scientists. The prospect of solving some of the, the really hard problems that have plagued humanity forever, that's like in like in our sights now. Like we could like feasibly solve problems like cancer, all these crazy permutations on coronavirus and, and any of these really scary viruses that are going to come out. Okay, listeners. So this is one of those episodes that starts normal and gets a little complicated. And we're going to get there in a little bit. But first, I really wanted to get to the bottom of these powerful machines. And I wanted to understand what makes supercomputers so, well, super. So I called up Bill Mannell, Vice President and General Manager of High Performance Computing at Hewlett-Packard Enterprise. In layman's terms, what is a supercomputer? A supercomputer is a lot of processors, memory, and a high-speed interconnect tying them together. And so supercomputing provides the hardware infrastructure, if you will, to do parallel computing. Parallel computing is important because typically in a problem, you'd want to break up the problem across multiple processors or multiple servers or nodes. And so typically what you do is break up the data, that's called data partitioning, where little chunks are put in each server on each processor and then worked on independently. And then typically at the end, you bring it all together. This parallel computing is kind of a big deal. It's what makes certain numerical problems ideal for supercomputers. Fun fact, Seymour Cray was totally against parallel processes as a solution for decades, famously once saying, if you were plowing a field, which would you rather use, two strong oxen or 1,024 chickens? These days, however, parallel compute is standard, and the more processes you've got, the more numbers you can crunch fast. And what makes them special or different to the, the PC sat under my desk? It's mostly because they're optimized around solving scientific and engineering problems in terms of how they can partition data, how they can manipulate the data, how they can keep a certain amount of the data in memory at one time. So you're not always moving data back and forth to do the disk drive or to the network, for example. Okay, key point here. It is all about the data. Starting from those initial fluid dynamics simulation, these big machines have been used for all kinds of modeling, from weather to weapons. Alongside their partners Intel, Bill and his team are in the process of deploying a supercomputer called Aurora, one of the world's first exascale computers at the US Department of Energy. But um, what's exascale? Well, to answer that, you first need to know that a supercomputer's speed is measured in floating point operations per second, aka flops, which are basically just the number of calculations it can do a second. Exascale computers, a computer that's able to do at least a billion billion floating point calculations per second. So there's no single chip in the world that can do that. So you've got to bring together a lot of chips into one system that allow you to accomplish that. It's basically 10 to the 18th in terms of number of floating point operations. That's a lot of zeros. Yes, a lot of zeros, 18 zeros. Supercomputer speeds have been growing steadily. 
A thousand flops is a killer flop. And a thousand killer flops is a mega flop. And a thousand mega flops is a giga flop. Then we have the teraflop, then a petaflop, then an exaflop. Blimey. But in reality, exascale doesn't exist yet. Aurora is going to be one of the first exascale computers completed, and it's going to take 18 months to deploy. And if you're wondering why so long, then there's a simple answer for that. Because it's big. <laughs> so lots of processors. And so even though we've seen uh, a good increase in the performance per processor, we'll still need to put a lot of processors into these machines to get them up and running. And there's a lot of complexity with the network and typically supercomputers have storage that they need to store their data on either input data or output data as well. And is the hardware, where do GPUs fit into how, what makes exascale computing possible? So GPUs are important because a typical GPU has hundreds of cores on a particular chip versus a more common microprocessor, which has you know, less than 100 at this point in time. And so that allows you to do a lot of parallel work across that chip and get a lot more work done. Why do we need to keep getting faster and faster computers? Well, because problems that we want to solve keep getting you know bigger and bigger. In some cases, we're actually trying to solve problems we have today and that we're solving, but we want them to be either more accurate. That means we're trying to get them at a higher fidelity and get more information out of them. There's a lot of natural phenomena we can't fully simulate today. Like what? What, what can't we simulate? Well, for example, uh, an internal combustion engine is in all of our cars and all of our vehicles, but today we can't fully model that without an exascale class machine. So all the different parts of it, from the materials, from the heat, from the forces that are taking place in it. And when you can start to model all of that, then you can do an optimization. And that, that could allow us some breakthroughs in terms of weight, size, fuel economy, these sorts of things as well. And these are things that we're not able to do today. That's fascinating. I, I guess I would have thought an internal combustion engine would be relatively relatively simple to model it's very complicated it very complicated it you know it, it simply works you know we don't fully understand a lot why it works but it does work reaching these astronomical speeds has been an industry obsession for a while and we'll hear more about exascale computing later but i wanted to understand the power of supercomputers from someone using them every day so I got in touch with Chineca, home to one of Italy's largest supercomputers. Andrew Emerson, program manager, has a PhD in chemistry and spends most of his time exploring the powerful applications of high-performance computing. We do anything where, you know, supercomputers can be of use or anywhere really where you do need more than the usual desktop computers. So things like weather prediction, aircraft design or... Um, engineering projects, simulations of volcanoes. So it's a pity you can't actually come to Jamaica, but we have a good video of what would happen if Vesuvius, you know, which is the volcano um, in Naples, if, if that was to erupt. So or you can do viscoelastic simulations of the lava flows. And you can use these simulations to design, a, I don't know, an emergency policy or an evacuation policy. 
I've I've so, I've been up for CVS. <laughs> it's, uh, it's 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 so, pretty cool. Yeah, it's pretty uh, cool. Yeah, it's, it's just hope it doesn't erupt in, in the near future. This is all classic supercomputer stuff. Researchers who want to look at complex engineering problems or model eruptions can apply to use the supercomputer for a period of time. The demand for HPC is high and the waitlist is long, but in early 2020 they dropped almost everything to make space for an incoming critical compute project. Italy was touched quite early by the um, by the pandemic. So when we first heard about it, was some towns in northern Italy were isolated because of the, these cases. So there was a, a town called Codogno, and then there was Bergamo as well. So Bergamo is, is, is a town in northern Italy, and that was hit very very badly by the pandemic. You know, as we saw this on TV. I mean, at the at the time, it was just something that happened a few towns and I can remember you know people celebrating when they these towns were finally taken out of lockdown unfortunately a few days later the rest of Italy was then put in lockdown and then a few days later Europe. In January 2020 the EU Commission put together some funding for emergency computing projects fast tracking applications to tackle the pandemic. Chineca joined a group of 18 institutions from seven European countries to form the Escalator 4 COV or E4C consortium. The aim is to find therapeutic treatments against the coronavirus. So drug treatments. So for example, there is Chineca providing supercomputing resources. There are groups around Europe who have laboratories, for example. There's a hospital in Italy which could help to conduct clinical trials. So, so we had experts all over Europe, all with this aim of to find therapeutic treatments. Clearly, it also means doing research into the virus and its replication as well. The E4C consortium started investigating drugs to repurpose in record time in part thanks to the fact that they were already collaborating on treatments for the Zika virus. By the 1st of March, they were already running tests, a pretty mean feat in the area of drug discovery. If you were just looking for a drug tomorrow for some disease, there's a good chance it would take 10 years, a uh, billion dollars, uh, a lot of regulatory approval and so on. So it, drug discovery is, is a very long and very expensive business. And, and this is a bit of a problem anyway in the pharmaceutical industry. This is why some pharmaceutical companies are reluctant to fund drug discovery programs for rare diseases because, you know, they, they may not get the payback on So instead, the initial goal of this consortium was, was not to design a new drug because that would take too long. You know, you need clinical trials and so on. So the idea was looking for a drug or a drug molecule which was already known with the hope that it could be reused against the coronavirus. To find a drug that works against a virus or bacteria, you need to look for a target to attack. In terms of the coronavirus, Andrew and the team were looking for proteins, which the virus uses for replication and infection. So, I mean, a, a virus is very simple. It is um, some genetic material, which in the case of COVID virus, it's a piece of RNA, and it's just enclosed in a sort of... Um, in a capsule of protein. But what the coronavirus does is the, the genetic material codes for proteins, which allow it to grip onto a cell, to attack, to get inside the cell, and to take over the cell's protein-making machinery to make copies of virus. 
the COVID virus has about uh, 25 or so proteins. So what we want to do is to find molecules which attack these proteins in some way, that they bind to them, that they connect to them in such a way that they stop what they're doing. This is easier to explain with a diagram, but, but you know, your proteins are these sort of complex three-dimensional things, but their shape is very important. If you can somehow you know, jam something onto that shape, you can actually stop the protein doing what it normally does. Like throwing a spanner into an engine. So, in theory, relatively simple. At least for a scientist. What's difficult is the sheer volume. There are libraries with literally billions of potential effective known drug molecules. And to test them all out in the lab would be impossible. So, enter the supercomputer. Andrew and the team were able to perform a kind of virtual experiment in the hopes of coming up with a shortlist. In the Escalate project, we have a library of 71 billion molecules. And using our supercomputers, we did this sort of experiment. It's called a docking experiment. You, know, you try to dock, you try to fit a molecule onto a protein. And we did this very big uh, experiment which is bigger than anything that's ever done in the entire world. So using 71 billion of these molecules and uh, 12 proteins, we evaluated 1 trillion interactions in 60 hours. And when we talk about the supercomputer that does these kinds of calculations, what kind of size are we talking about? At Chenaica, we have this supercomputer called Marconi 100. It's called Marconi because Marconi did his wireless experiments just outside Bologna in a place called Sasso Marconi. This computer has a thousand what we call nodes. So each one of these nodes is like a, a miniature computer. One of these nodes is 20 times faster than my PC. Okay, my PC is a little bit old now, but even if I had a, you know, an up-to-date uh, gaming PC or something, you know, it, it would still be 10 to 20 times faster. And of course, this computer has a thousand of these. So we're talking about perhaps equivalent to 20,000 uh, PCs. Wow, now we're talking. So what do they find? We did a, a smaller experiment where we came up with a list of 400 potential molecules. And then these were sent to a laboratory for um, further analysis. Okay, so at some stage you do have to include the laboratory. And 100 were found to be um, reactive to the coronavirus. And out of these, 40 showed promise in inhibiting the replication of the virus. One of these molecules was very interesting. It's an osteoporosis drug called raloxifen, which is well known. So this is a generic drug. But this was found in the laboratory to be active against preventing COVID uh, replication. So this is why in the summer of uh, 2020, will be applied to the European Medical Agency to do clinical trials. We got the go-ahead sometime later last year, and there are now clinical trials for this drug in Italy. But without a supercomputer to, to run those original calculations, that drug probably wouldn't have been found? Probably not, no. I mean, to do that via a laptop would take you months. We can do this thing in a few hours, uh, perhaps maximum a day. And then, of course, you have all the data which has to be analysed and so on. So, I mean, you can't consider doing this sort of experiment without a supercomputer. 
So the consortium that started in March found a potential therapeutic drug by the summer, and there are clinical trial results expected any time now. The speed is pretty humbling. This was a real-world test of our scientific research and technology institutions, a pooling of resources and an example of computing for the greater good. In a way, it's comforting to know that even though this was a challenge that we never wanted to face, it's one that the E4C consortium and other bodies worldwide have risen to. The, you know, this coronavirus was extremely new and nobody knew much about it. So here we were, we were doing stuff which nobody had done before. And this is really exciting. And, and it's also exciting because you think you may make a difference. My PhD in the UK was a very theoretical PhD, which, which is probably completely forgotten about by now. But here we felt that you know, we were doing something really useful, we're doing something, and the more we found out about it, the more useful it would be. I guess, like, I, I, do you feel really proud about the work that you guys have done? Uh, I, I think so, yes, because finally I can explain to my son what I'm working on. <laughs> you know, he always used to ask me what I did and uh, I, I found it difficult to explain it to him. I mean, this has always been a bit of a big problem with science and technology, particularly science, because it, it seemed to be a bit distant to the general public. You know, when you ask someone in the street, what do you think of a scientist? They normally think of some guy with a beard and a white coat or something, cackling away in a corner, perhaps. Here, I think it's clear that, you know, researchers are doing something which is important now and not just simply using public money for doing strange things. What excites you most about the opportunity of using supercomputers for scientific research? They're getting ever more powerful so that they're pushing the boundaries of what we can do. You know, we're doing things now which would have been considered inconceivable even just two or three years ago because also the software is improving as well. And you know, the faster the computer, the more things you can study. In our case, we study proteins for very short time scales. It used to be like a thousand millionth of a second. Now we can study up to a millionth of a second and even more. And, you know, we're pushing the boundaries or we're improving the number of things we can discover. Thanks, Andrew. So supercomputers have worked in this way for decades housed in special facilities with scientists and researchers applying to use them for specific large-scale or technical challenges. But that is changing. You see, HPC is coming to a data centre or even a desktop near you. The modern computing revolution based on Moore's law shows that processing power has increased exponentially while processing cost has fallen just as fast. A lot of organisations can actually afford a supercomputer now, or they can at least use one as a service. And because of that, as Bill explains, supercomputers are making inroads into all kinds of industries, from agriculture to manufacturing. In the area of automotive design, there's a certain point at which you're ready to release the next designs for the new year. And there's a thing called crash testing. You've probably seen it on TV a little bit. You see a car crash into a wall with some dummies that kind of flop around. Well, that's only a little bit of the work that goes into crash testing today. Typically, that will help to set certain boundary conditions 
and make sure that your models are right. But most of the crash testing is actually done in a computer. And so supercomputers have been really important because typically there's a very short window from getting your car designs done and actually getting your crash results together to, to go and, and show to various regulatory agencies around the world and say, you know, I have a safe car design. And so this is a perfect problem for supercomputing because you've got a very complex problem with a lot of data, but a short period of time to do it in. So that gives us some pretty good parameters for what supercomputers are useful for today. A complex problem with a lot of data and a tight schedule. If I take a set of stocks and I uh, want to understand what they'll look like in three, five, 10 year time frame, that's typically a, a problem you want to solve almost continuously because you're making portfolio decisions for your clients and you'd want to get the latest results very quickly. Okay, should I, should I sell this particular stock or, and should I buy this particular stock? How is that going to change over time? And how is the market uh, going to affect the way that portfolio is and should I make some changes today? So again, a pretty complicated problem and with a time element with it for portfolio management is it really who, whoever has the biggest computer can do things quicker uh yeah you, you know ab absolutely and if you look at most of the the big financial houses big banks they invest very heavily in supercomputing technology probably keep it quite secret though <laughs> yes exactly yeah the algorithms you know typically are are highly proprietary to them and here they are the algorithms when you hear the words modeling and simulations, you know AI can't be far off. And it looks like artificial intelligence has huge implications on where HPC is going next. So typically in the past, we followed a path of, we have to build a model or simulation of what the, the, the natural world is. But as we look at AI, we have the ability to take data and analyze it by itself and allow us to get a result a different way. Now, back in the day, something like, say, weather would be forecasted using a supercomputer running a load of simulations to try and understand the movement of the weather systems. Now, you know, we have the advantage of lots and lots of relatively cheap sensors out that can measure all kinds of things from wind temperature to barometric pressure to air temperatures. Then we can start to understand a little bit about the changes that happen when, let's say, a weather system comes in and we can track that and say, oh, you know, this is this is a similar change. And now we recognize that there could be a tornado here because we've seen that data before. So it's, it's interesting because it allows us to, in a lot of cases, use both AI and traditional modeling simulation together to solve problems more quickly and with higher fidelity than we have been before. By using AI, we can approach traditional supercomputing problems from a new angle. So what does that look like in practice? I called up Jacob Balmer, who you heard at the start of this episode to hear about his FARML project. Jacob wants to work on something similar to Andrew Emerson at Chineka, the dynamics of those protein molecules for drug binding experiments. And in order to do so, they beefed up their supercomputer with machine learning. What we did is we looked at training a machine learning model called a neural net. It's a data-driven approach where you go and you take actual X-ray crystallography derived from um, the, a synchrotron is what it's called, but it's a very expensive experiment to run. And essentially it gives you the actual positions of the individual atoms that make up a protein. And it gives you the actual binding site of a drug. 
And so there's huge databases of these that are getting bigger every day that have this experimental data. So it's, you know, 10,000 atoms of a protein and then maybe five or 10 atoms of a small drug that's bound to that specific protein. And if you train a neural net on enough of that, it can eventually, in sort of an orientation agnostic way, predict which drugs will bind to a protein and which drugs will not. Jacob and his partner Erin Bose collaborated with the Medical University of South Carolina on the project, which uses a particular kind of neural net. Effectively, a set of AI algorithms that model the human brain. It's called a graph neural net. They're actually, I won't go into too much detail about what's cool about graph nets, but they're a very new approach to designing neural nets that allows you to deal with sparse data. This is complicated stuff. But instead of using a supercomputer to model the protein binding, which would be an approximation to molecular quantum dynamics, duh, they trained a neural net on the actual positions of the atoms. Rather than doing these approximations to quantum mechanics, we have actual quantum mechanics, right? Because we have the actual physical locations. We got something like 98% on binding DB, which is about 2 million drugs and 200,000 proteins. So that gives you pretty high confidence that you've learned something physical from the data. It's not just learning how to like statistically get the question right of whether or not the drug binds, but it's actually learning something about the physical process about drug binding in the end. Okay, if your science education is a little rusty like mine is, don't worry, we won't go in any further than that. But if you are interested in learning more, we've linked to the FireML research paper in the show notes. And if all that talk of quantum mechanics got you curious about quantum computing, then... The thing about quantum computing is, apart from the fact that I find it difficult <laughs> to understand, and I have a scientific background and I've worked in computers for, you know, a good part of my life. Yep, quantum is a whole other can of worms. And you'll have to join us later on in the series for us to untangle that one. So, back to AI. What's important to know is this. Machine learning on a regular computer is pretty cool. But machine learning on a supercomputer is incredible. It's actually like orders of magnitude faster. If you tried to run them on a laptop, they would take uh, like three years, I think, to run approximately on a single laptop. And they're training them in, you know, uh, 600 seconds, say, on, on some of the larger supercomputers, Whoa. you know. So that's... Wow. That's the kind. That's the kind of benefit you get to having a supercomputer, especially with this machine learning stuff, is that you can get all of this data fed in and teach the model to do something useful with it in like no time at all. So that in itself is valuable just on a single server. But if you scale that up to ten thousand servers, you know you can actually solve new problems. It's actually an exciting new frontier in some ways because we have something like a couple million drugs that have been developed since the FDA started approving drugs. But there's 20,000 unique proteins in the human body. Uh, 750 of those are being targeted right now by that set of drugs. So there's a huge, there's a huge untapped like functional resource for developing drugs that we just don't know what most of the proteins in the body are doing. If you think about personalized medicine, what ideally what you want is to be able to have a doctor take like a blood sample or a, a little bit of an individual person and really simulate their entire body, like simulate the entire set of processes that are unique to that person and get a drug that's tailored specifically to them that minimizes like negative side effects, but optimizes for having an impact on whatever the disease is that they're, that they're dealing with, right? 
So what I, what I could see happening in the future is that with a combination of machine learning and having very efficient models right, of, of individual persons, is that you could, you could do this sort of uh, like personalized medicine drug discovery on individuals. Told you this episode was going to get intense. Personalized drug discovery might seem far out, but this combination of machine learning and high-performance computing is going to have a big impact on all of us. So exascale is interesting because it's kind of the, the scale at which you could like feasibly start to simulate at least good portions of like the human brain. I'm sorry, what? I think what nobody was anticipating, we were talking about exascale before machine learning. So when machine learning got added onto what you can do on an exascale computer, the types of problems that you can can solve with the systems now are actually very different problems that we didn't think that we could actually work with because we didn't have numerical models, right? Okay, so what it comes down to is this. Big AI models need big data sets to learn from and big computers to learn on. Didn't mean that's a rhyme. <laughs> and they're starting to crop up more and more you might have heard of a project by OpenAI called GPT-3. It was kind of controversial because it was able to generate human-like sentences and paragraphs from nothing, from a sim simple prompt of, you know, you give it a couple of words and then it writes you an article, you know, which is dangerous for several reasons. And that model is, is enormous, okay? To look at um, what, what the one that Google released, which is a trillion parameter model, that actually has more parameters in it, which are the things representing the connections between, between neurons. It has more of those in it than there are neurons in the human brain. So, and that's something that they trained. It probably cost them you know, $10 million to train the thing. But in the end, what they have out is a very powerful model that's able to do a lot of this text generation. It could actually generate images from text, uh, which is a, a really interesting area too. Wow. Uh, yeah, so I, I see that as being kind of one of the one of the big things that you'll see with these exascale machines is getting really close to looking at what the actual physical dynamics are in the human brain and solving very complicated problems with uh, simulated brains like neural nets. All right, thanks, Jacob. Consider my mind suitably blown by that conversation. So from data-heavy, time-sensitive compute use cases in financial services, we are now getting close to modeling the human brain. Wow. Now, if you've got this far, you might very well be shouting at your device. All right, we get it, Michael. Supercomputers are incredible. But why would my organization need one? Two words for you, my friends. Two words. Big data. Certainly, as we go forward, we're seeing the access to more and more data, which we really didn't have you know, five, 10 years ago, you know, that's through our cell phones, through web clicks, through all the devices we have running around the thermostat we have, that's a data generator now before we just kind of a dumb device, our cars, you know, all of our cars are now hooked up and upload data at a regular basis. So, so there's all this data out there. And I, you know, I always say that data by itself is kind of a waste, right? I mean, it just kind of fills, just kind of fills space and costs you money. But when you compute on it, then you can actually get information from it. And so the opportunity is for a lot of businesses is, is how, do they, how do they use that data that they have in order to make better decisions, build better products, bring products to market faster. And so there's a lot of opportunity for that as we go forward. Hmm. Well, are we really creating that much data? 
You often hear the stat quoted that 90% of the data created in the world was created in the last two years. Whether that's true or not, it is a fact that in just one day, we send 500 million tweets and 294 billion emails, a connected car produces four terabytes of data, and Facebook produces five petabytes of data in a day. In a, That's five followed by 15 zeros. There's more data than we know what to do with. Organizations are collecting it. So isn't it time they put it to good use? More and more countries are investing in supercomputers because they see that as a significant cornerstone to developing their technology and developing their economies. In, in the past, supercomputing was typically limited to you know, a, a handful of very advanced countries. And now you're seeing more and more countries saying, hey, you know, we want to participate as well. And this will allow us to develop the, the kind of expertise and the technology foundation that will allow us to, to do more things as we go forward. When we hit this critical point of being able to simulate things so quickly, it, it kind of makes you wonder what the limits of that are, you know, where we'll be 10 years from now. It's hard to really say. Scientists and researchers have led the way with supercomputers and will continue to solve critical problems for society. And now, cue epic music, it's our turn. Whether we're investing in our own supercomputers or using them as a service, the future of HPC for regular organizations is yet to be written. But the data boom isn't going anywhere soon. For the World Economic Forum in 2021, HPE wrote, our computing needs as a society will only continue to accelerate. With material innovations and accelerators driving scale and performance up and cost down, HPC could arm every government, researcher and enterprise with advanced problem-solving tools to attack just about any problem they have in front of them. If you stay with us as we venture down the rabbit hole of eccentric electrical engineers, parallel architectures, protein binding and neural nets, then by now you'll probably, like me, need something to drink. Just uh, make sure you don't ask a scientist to pour it for you. What was the material that, that Mr. Cray wanted to replace gallium arsenide, with? gallium nitride both of them they're coming back though they both sound very like very pungent yeah the arsenide gallium is great i mean you can hold gallium in your hand but the arsenic yeah you gotta be careful with that you've been listening to technology untangled i'm michael bird and a huge thanks to jacob balmer andrew emerson and bill manel and you can find a lot more info in the show notes this episode was written and produced by Isabel Pollard and edited by Alex Bennett with production support from Harry Morton, Alex Podmore and Tom Clark. Technology Untangled is a Lower Street production for Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.